0: 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Our unity that we have as a body is in Christ and by his spirit and in what we just remembered and confessed. And and in local churches, God represents that spiritual unity that we have with each other through church membership, and this morning we have the uh, joy of inviting three new members into our church family, so I want to invite the Sibley family forward, Randy and Sylvia and Abigail would come, and I don't know if Johanna's in here or not, but but Johanna, you know, a lot of you have seen Johanna, cute as can be, in the nursery, I think, and so, okay, Randy's going to go get her, I was, I was hoping she could be out here with us, you guys need to stand over here and face the congregation, so. Um, again, we, uh, I'll wait for Randy to get back to do the next thing. But we have uh, Sylvia and Abigail here. And uh, Sylvia and Randy are Abigail's grandparents. And, and then Johanna is Abigail's daughter. And they have been with us, uh, worshipping with us for the last four months or so. And uh, our, our family's gotten to know them very well these past few months and been encouraged by the Lord's grace in their lives and, and his work and, and uh, drawing them here and, and bringing us fellowship. They've been part of our home group this semester. And so we've gotten a good chance to get to know them That way as well. Hi, Johanna. So I want to ask you guys just a few questions before we um, ask the body a question as well in terms of joining the church. So first, um, all members of the church we we understand are those who have faith in Christ, uh, not just something that we we do in an external way, but through personal faith in Christ. I just want to ask each of you uh, to affirm by saying, "I do." Um, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone and his death on the cross, his resurrection for your forgiveness of sins, uh, his grace alone in your life, through faith alone, and not by any works that you do. If you put your faith in Christ, if so, say we do. All right. And then our purpose statement is over here to my right. Redeemer church exists to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, establishment, and missions. So Randy and Sylvia and Abigail. Do you commit to joining with Redeemer Church as we pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through our four pillars? So say we do. We do. Amen. And church family, uh, if you're a member, would you stand up, please? Do you commit, church family, to partner with the Sibley family as, as we together seek to live out our purpose of pursuing the glory of God and the joy of all people? So say we do. I do. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to have Tim come up now. We're going to do our membership covenant together. Uh, Randy and Sylvia and be you guys can sit down after the service. Uh, go up to Randy and Sylvia, give them a hug, tell them welcome to our church family, and and uh, we will start walking together even more as members together. Love you guys. And Tim, if you'd come and lead us. In our, there he is, in our covenant. Yeah. You. you guys can sit.
1: Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This morning, if you're a member of a Redeemer Church, we'd like to ask you to stand as we renew our membership covenant. Y'all can read with me. Worship, I commit to continue to believe the gospel and bear the fruit of repentance. I commit to celebrate my covenant relationship with God. I regularly join the believers of Redeemer Church. I commit to focus my heart, my mind, my life, on one person, Jesus, who is the center of Christian worship. I commit to pursue the glory of God in all things. Fellowship. I commit to partner with my fellow believers in gospel love. I commit to regularly participate in gatherings of the church, employ my spiritual gifts for the encouragement of the body. I commit to pray for others, collectively sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. I commit to be thoughtful, courteous to others, be slow to take offense. And to be quick to forgive and seek forgiveness, discipleship. I commit to be trained, and ultimately to train others in faithful gospel application. I commit to engage regularly in Bible reading and prayer and family worship in my home. I commit to give and receive godly counsel and correction. I commit to submit to the leaders of Redeemer Church knowing that the only authority they have is the authority of the Word of God. Missions. I commit to faithfully take the gospel hope to people in need of it. I commit to make personal sacrifices so the gospel may be advanced. I commit to pray for gospel advancement locally, nationally, and around the world. I commit to give generously and joyfully financial support to the gospel mission of the church. By the grace of God, the members of the Redeemer Church will always be a shining light in this dark.
2: The rest can stand. of the Most High we are, pride of the Savior and we fall for the King of the Kingdom as we sing the songs of salvation and we stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. the loveless we go. Where your light's not shining, we are the body of Christ.
0: Good morning. Hope that everyone had a a happy, good Thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for, uh, particularly those of us who know the blessings of the gospel and God's grace in our lives. We can always give thanks in every circumstance. And, and I know we have a number of visitors here today. We also have a number of our members that are not here today traveling, and that's one of the blessings of, of weeks like this as we get to uh, fellowship with other parts of the body as, as people travel and, and come. So if you're visiting with us today, we're just glad to have you here. Uh, if you are around this area and you're visiting with us, we, we do uh, want to encourage you to uh, let us get to know you more. We have uh, little cards in the back that you can give information on just how we can contact you and follow up with you. Our desire is is simply, as we saw earlier, to, to walk together in this purpose and pursuing the glory of God and the joy of all people and, and helping each other do that uh, as as his body in this world. And so uh, if you uh, are, are with us visiting today, we'd love for you to fill one of those out so that we can contact you and, and just know how how we can... Uh, minister to you better, and and so with that, you can open your Bibles to the Book of Joshua. In the Bibles to the Book of Joshua. As you do that, just to go and reflect on what we just did together in the Lord's Supper, we we remembered the Gospel of Jesus Christ together. We we remembered that we are all sinners who need salvation. That's who we are. We're sinners who need salvation. And we remember that Jesus Christ is the one that God sent to save us. He is the Savior. He saved us through living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death, and rising again in a powerful resurrection. And our faith in this message, this is what unites us together, church. That this is our unity, is our faith in Christ. It's not in anything else. We are by the Spirit, one body in Christ. We have spirit. Spiritual unity with one another and, and, and th- this spiritual unity that, that is true unity that exists in the people of God by the truth of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. We have that with one another. You know, spiritual unity, church, is a, is a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful blessing. Psalm 133 1 says this Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity in unity. That verse is telling us that spiritual unity is is a joy-producing reality for the people of God. It's a soul-refreshing thing to have spiritual unity with God's people. We've experienced this, haven't we? I remember one occasion when Candace and I were needing to make a hard decision, and seeking a lot of counsel and and we got a lot of different opinions and and we ended up having to having to pick up and move and and we just felt very alone but i remember being in the moving truck on the way out and and knowing in that moment that we had spiritual unity midst of all the unknowns we were facing all the all the different opinions that others may have had of of our decision because there's much variety of counsel we knew in that moment that we had a unity, and it was one of the harder points of our early marriage, but it was also one of the sweeter points because how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I would say this past year at Redeemer Church that one of the most significant ways that God has blessed us as a church family this year is by giving us spiritual unity with one another. By, by blessing us with, with this experience of, of being refreshed by each other and encouraged by each other and having unity with each other in the faith. And it is, it is good and pleasant when God's people dwell in unity. Not only is spiritual unity a wonderful blessing to us, but it's also a powerful witness. It's a powerful witness. In John 17, this this is how Jesus prays. The night before he is crucified, he's praying for his church of all time, and this is what he prays. I ask that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying for the church. And what does he pray for? He says that they may be united, that they may be one. And why does he pray that? He prays for the unity of the church because spiritual unity bears powerful testimony to the world of the truth of the gospel message we proclaim. And again, church, by the grace of God, we, we've experienced this this year. A number of our new members in 2019 have pointed directly to the loving community that existed in our body as what God used to draw them in. Just pray, praise God for that, that, that it wasn't um, just, just uh, the, 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 the singing or that fit my preferences, but it was, it was your church loved each other. It was evident that you were loving each other, you're unified with each other. That's God's grace, and it, and it bears witness to what Jesus said, that when we're one, People see that there's something different going on there. There's something, there's something supernatural happening in that community. Spiritual unity is a wonderful blessing to us, but it's also a powerful witness to the world. At the same time, though, we need to recognize something else in Scripture spiritual unity is a fragile reality, it's a fragile thing. Now, while true believers will always have truly, actual unity by the Spirit of God. True, true, true believers can never lose that fundamental unity in our faith. That doesn't mean that we will always have functional, experiential unity in this life with other believers. I want you to listen to just the number of New Testament passages that demonstrate how fragile spiritual unity can be in this life. Whether through example or instruction, just listen to these passages. Acts 15, 37-39. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Romans fourteen fifteen and 19, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. James 4.1, what causes quarrels among you? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then Ephesians 4, we read this morning, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a few examples in there of people who who were disagreeing, people who were were struggling with unity. And then all these instructions are to churches, not that had unity, but churches that were struggling with unity. And and Paul's saying, "It's, it's worth it. Find unity. Don't be divided. Maintain unity. Church family, I know, I know that you have experienced what a wonderful blessing spiritual unity is to our hearts. And I know that you've also experienced what a powerful witness it is to the world. But, but on top of that, I, I know that many of you have experienced, personally experienced, what a fragile reality spiritual unity can be. How, how easily unity can deteriorate. How hard it can be to put things back together once it does. And the trail of heartache that it leaves in its wake. The trail of heartache that disunity leaves behind it. Church, this is why God calls us to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because it is a fragile thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. And it is a fragile thing. For the last several months, I've been consistently drawn to just pray for our unity as a church and that God would help us to protect it and, and, and He would strengthen it and that He would maintain it. And, and this week, after opening up Joshua 22 and beginning to understand what the story was about, I, I began to see, God, you are answering these prayers through your word this morning, this, this week. He's doing that this morning. Let's look at this story together in Joshua 22. We'll see how it teaches us about unity. Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day. You have been very careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. We'll stop there and just review what's going on at the beginning of this chapter. Remember, the people of Israel and Joshua are receiving their inheritance. God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them to the Jordan and over the Jordan to receive their inheritance in the promised land. But there were two and a half tribes the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who on the way in the wilderness, right on the other side of the Jordan, after defeating an enemy who had come against them, realized this land, though it's not in the promised land, is good land. This would be good land for us. And so they asked Moses... She asked the Lord if this could be their inheritance, and the Lord granted their request. And and so we we, we call these tribes the trans-Jordan tribes, or the eastern tribes, the tribes whose land was on the other side of the Jordan and not in the promised land. And, And God gave them that land as their inheritance with one condition, that when Israel crossed over the Jordan, even though they had their inheritance, they needed to go across with their brothers and fight with Israel for the inheritance of the land. And, that, and that's what we saw in Joshua 1. Joshua reminded them as they crossed, you guys need to come with us and because you were part of this people of God, and they, and they did. And Joshua says that here, you were you faithful. He commends them for their faithfulness to come over with their brothers and to fight with them until they had rest in the land. These tribes did that. And so now look at verse 4. This has happened. Joshua says, Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. So again, these verses, Joshua commends them for their faithfulness. He He says, you have been faithful to the Lord. You've been faithful to God's people. Now go home. Your job is done. You can go to your inheritance. And he says, only when you go, he instructs them, continue being faithful continue serving the lord continue following his commands continue loving him continue serving him and then he blesses them on their way he, he sends them off with with all the spoils that they had received during the conquering of the land he blesses them with that and they and they go to their land now let's see what happens next in this story verses 10 through 12 when they came to the region of the jordan That is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, and they said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay, things changed fast there, didn't they? The eastern tribes go on their way, and what do they do? First thing, they get to the Jordan River, and they build a huge altar, an altar of imposing size, a sacrificial altar. And the western tribes hear of it, and what do they do? They get ready to attack them. They get ready for war. What is going on here? It's not obvious to us at first glance what's happening, but Deuteronomy 12 gives us God's instruction in the land, he, he forbids Israel from making any altars except to have the one central altar at the tent of meeting. God, God says you, you may not have any other sacrificial altars in the land, only the one that's in the tent of meeting. And the reason that God did that was to pr- protect the purity of Israel's worship, to, to keep them from, from going into the idolatry of Canaanite worship, because they had altars all over the land. God said smash all those other altars and have one altar. Yet immediately, immediately after Joshua says, just continue loving the Lord, continue clinging to the Lord, continue following the Lord, continue obeying his commands, continue obeying the law of Moses, immediately these tribes build an altar of imposing size where they're not supposed to build it. And so Israel hears this, and they know this is wrong. This is sin. This is dangerous. Not just to them, but to us, because we've seen in Joshua that God treats Israel as a corporate entity. And this is part of Israel. So this is not dangerous to them, it's dangerous to the whole people. And if they don't do something, then they're all going to fall under the wrath of God. And so Israel prepares to attack them. Now before launching their assault, someone has the good idea of sending someone to talk to them about it to confront their actions first before they go to war. And so we see this in verses 13 through 20. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phineas the son of Eleazar, the priest. And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the <laughs> clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we've not cleansed ourselves? For which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he didn't perish alone for his iniquity. So Essentially, the Phineas and the ten elders that come with them—they come. They plead with them, "Don't do this. What? What are you doing? How could you do this? How could you build this altar? Haven't we sinned enough?" That's what they say. Haven't we sinned enough? We sinned in the wilderness. ache can sin. We, we've experienced the wrath of God for our sins. Why are you doing this? Just don't rebel. If, if your land—if there's a problem with your land—come and take our land. Just don't do this thing you're doing. Don't rebel against. The Lord. Look at how the Western tribes then respond, verse 21 and follow. And then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so that your children will not say to our children, in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us, or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Well, it turns out things were not what they seemed to be. The eastern tribes immediately invoke the name of the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord. It's a way of underscoring from the very get-go that they are clinging to him faithfully. They are serving him. They they are being faithful to him. Knowing they've done nothing wrong, they actually invite the Lord's wrath if they have. And then they explain their actions. And And what do they say? This altar was not built for sacrifice. This altar was not built for idolatry. This altar was built as a witness because we were afraid with this this Jordan River dividing us, we were afraid that in future generations, you Israelites in the land would say to us who are in the other side of the Jordan that you have no part in Israel. You have no part in worshiping the Lord and not not let them come, not let them worship. And so they built this altar, not to sacrifice on, but literally as a copy, as a copy of the real altar. As a reminder to both groups that they are united in their worship. That they are united in Yahweh. That they are indeed part of God's people who worshipped the Lord. And so how does the story end? Verses 30 and following. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. What was nearly a mistake of epic proportions, a, a civil war between these newly settled tribes of Israel, there's nothing worse that you could imagine at that point, right? It becomes a unified time of thanksgiving and worship to the Lord. Now, i need to be honest. When I first read this story this week, I thought to myself, this has got to be one of the strangest stories in Scripture. I mean, in the end, nothing actually happens. It's a story about something that almost happened, but didn't. And that generally doesn't make for a good story. You don't go to the movie to see something that didn't happen. You want to see the action. You want to see the fight. But you see, his placement here in the final chapters of the book of Joshua indicates to us how important the story actually is in the author's mind. These are the concluding chapters of this amazing book about the promises of God. And he chooses to put include this story. There's, there's tons of things he could have included that he didn't in this book, but he chose to include this story here because he's telling us this is important. The story is significant. What should we make of its placement? Think about it. Israel has conquered their enemies. Israel has received their inheritance. Israel has rest in the promised land. And the first thing the author focuses on is this near brush with civil war. You know what that teaches us? It teaches us the priority of unity for the people of God. It teaches us the priority of unity for the people of God. See, way back in chapter 1, we saw that Israel needed unity for the mission of the conquest. But now that the conquest is over, you understand, Israel's real mission was just beginning. Israel's greater mission was just beginning. They were to be a light to the world. They were to be God's people, God's nation, God's chosen people in the midst of a world that didn't know him. They were to be the people that brought blessing to the Gentiles. And to do that, they needed to maintain the unity that they had in the conquest. And and here's what I think is going on with this story. This particular story functions on one level as a warning that unity is not easily maintained. This, This functions as a warning that shows us how close Israel came to destroying their unity. But at the same time, because it doesn't actually happen, the story functions as an encouragement to us that it's possible to maintain it that it is possible to maintain unity as well. And I believe this chapter gives us today three truths that we need to recognize in order to maintain our spiritual unity today. Three truths from this chapter that we need to recognize this morning so that we, Redeemer Church, can maintain our spiritual unity going forward. First, if we are going to maintain our spiritual unity, we need to recognize that faithfulness is fundamental to unity. Faithfulness is fundamental to true unity. Though the focus of this chapter is the unity of God's people, the real priority of this chapter is their worship of God. The focus is unity, but the priority is really worship. It's really faithfulness. This is where the story begins, with Joshua commending the eastern tribes for their faithfulness to obey the Lord during the conquest and then instructing them to keep being faithful as they return home. Look again at what he said in verse 5. Look down at verse 5 again. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is faithful worship. Joshua is describing faithful worship. What what, what is it? It is an inward love for the Lord that is expressed by an outward obedience to his word. That's faithful worship, church. It's an inward love for the Lord that's expressed by an outward obedience to his word. It's a heart level cleaning to the Lord that's expressed by walking in his ways daily. It is serving God from the inside out, from a heart that has been changed on the inside, serving him in your life. This is faithful worship. And this faithfulness in worship is fundamental to spiritual unity. This is why the unity of these tribes was disrupted, because it seemed to the Western tribes that the Eastern tribes were forsaking the Lord by their actions. And it wasn't until they had confidence that that wasn't the case that they were still being faithful in their worship, that their spiritual unity was restored. There is no unity if there is not first faithfulness. Faithfulness is fundamental to unity. As we seek to maintain our spiritual unity today, then we need to apply this by realizing that our primary pursuit cannot be unity. Our primary pursuit must be God himself. Whatever unity a church may have, if it's not grounded in faithful worship, it isn't true spiritual unity. We must be first and foremost zealous for our faithfulness to the Lord as a body. First looking after our own worship of the Lord, and then encouraging our brothers and sisters in their worship of the Lord. This is where unity flows from, is this faithful worship of God. And so hear the call of Joshua for yourself this morning, church. Are you being very careful to love the Lord your God? Are you being very careful to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul? Are you cultivating an inward love for God in your life right now? Are you doing that? Are you pursuing that? Are you cultivating this this inward affection for Jesus Christ as being expressed in your life by outward obedience? Are you turning from the idols of your heart to cling to God and serve Him alone? This is fundamental to unity. This is where we need to put our focus. Commit yourself to the pursuit of faithful worship in your life and then prioritize one another's faithful worship in their lives. Prioritize that above keeping the peace. Above superficial unity. That means nothing. It's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in true spiritual unity to so prioritize each other's faithful worship. Faithfulness is fundamental to unity. Second, if we're going to maintain our spiritual unity, we need to recognize also that understanding is essential to unity. Understanding is essential to unity. Faithfulness is fundamental. Understanding is essential. We've all experienced it. We have had conflicts with someone else that were based not in someone's maliciousness, but rather in someone's misunderstanding. We have all allowed our imaginations to run wild as we try to discern what someone else's actions mean, what someone else's words mean, to the point that we're convinced they are doing something wrong, when in actuality they've done nothing wrong. You see, the first point that faithfulness is fundamental to unity takes into account our fallen nature. It takes into account that we are fallen people who are prone to sin and we need to be faithful. We need to pursue faithfulness. But, but this point, it takes into account our finiteness. Our finiteness that we each have a limited perspective. This chapter is so interesting because, because this civil war almost happens and no one's doing anything wrong. Both groups are being zealous to worship Yahweh. Both groups are zealous for faithfulness, aren't they? Both groups are saying we need to be faithful. And yet their perspectives are limited and they don't have understanding of the other. And this almost happens. Our perspective is always limited and therefore we need to work hard at widening our understanding if we are to maintain spiritual unity. The author of Joshua, I think, wants to help us enter into this dynamic because when he, when he first tells us that they built an altar, he himself withholds the information about why, doesn't he? He just, he just wants us to feel what the Western tribes felt. How could they? How could they do that? This is sin. This is, this is terrible. They're going to blow it all. They're going to ruin it all. From, from our limited perspective, it clearly seems like the Eastern tribes have sinned, but it's the mere perception of unfaithfulness, that nearly leads Israel into this civil war. Though they're both actually acting in complete faithfulness to the Lord, they lacked unity because they lacked understanding. And it's a good thing that someone in Israel said, maybe we should go talk to them first before we start attacking them. It wasn't until the Eastern tribes had an opportunity to explain their actions that the Western tribes understood what was really going on and unity was restored. And so yes, faithfulness is fundamental to unity. And we are fallen creatures who, who even in in, in our new nature, we, we often fall back into sin and we need to pursue faithfulness. But that's not all that unity takes in a body of people. Unity takes understanding. We need to prioritize understanding one another. We can't let our perception of someone else's actions destroy unity. We need to talk. When you talk with them when that happens, when we, when we perceive that someone is in the wrong, we perceive that someone is not with us, we need to talk it out. We don't just take the easy route and assume. We communicate with each other. We hash things out. We get the whole picture before allowing unity to be disrupted. Now, the thing about Joshua 22 is that this principle is clear, but their approach could have been better. You know, they, they come and and they don't say, you know, we, we just noticed this. Thing happening. Can you explain this? They came and they said, How could you sin and rebel against the Lord? And that's not maybe how you should go to someone. First words out of your mouth when you think that they may have sinned. Don't don't, you, you sinner? How could you? No, this chapter is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive, but God does give us good instructions for this, and and, and just simple good instructions for how, how we can gain understanding to pursue unity. God's word tells us, take the log out of your own eye. Look at yourself first. Examine yourself. Make sure that you are in the right place. God's word also tells us to assume the best about your brother, not the worst. To to hope all things. Love hopes all things. Don't don't, don't assume the worst case scenario in your mind, but, but hope for the best. Come and ask questions rather than make accusations. And then when there isn't faithfulness, gently restore your brother. This is the work of understanding. And it applies to unity in the church. It applies to unity in marriage. Peter says in, in 1 Peter that husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. If You want unity in your marriage. You, you can't just focus on your own personal faithfulness. You also need to make sure that you are understanding each other because we are finite, limited people. And we need to do the hard work making sure that we do not assume things that are not true, that we don't just perceive unfaithfulness when it's not there. So if we're going to maintain unity, church, we need to pursue faithfulness. We need to prioritize worship. Faithfulness is fundamental to unity, but we also need to work at understanding each other. Understanding is essential to unity. We need to communicate. We need to talk. When you have a question, go ask that question. Don't just assume things. Don't act on things that you don't know for sure. But third, church, if we're going to maintain our spiritual unity, we need to recognize that God's presence, self, is the power for unity. God's presence is the power for unity. When all is said and done in the story, once the Eastern tribes have explained their actions and the Western tribes have called off their troops and unity has been restored, we need to see how Israel interprets this close call. Look at verse 31 with me again. 22, verse 31. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Phineas recognizes something here that I think we would easily miss. It was the presence of God with his people that enabled them to maintain their unity. It wasn't just the fact that there was actually no sin committed. It wasn't just that Israel was wise enough to interact before they attacked. No, they maintained unity because the Lord was in their midst. They were delivered from this near tragic civil war because God was with them, helping them, guiding them, Enabling them every step of the way to walk in faithfulness to Him and to cultivate understanding with each other. This was ultimately, church, a victory of the grace of God with His people, the presence of God with His people. Can't tell you how many times I've seen faithful Christians disagree and even seeking to understand, seeking to work it out, both committed to the Lord. <laughs> And yet, there's something about human nature and our fight against sin that, that keeps us from unity. Left to ourselves, we would never be able to maintain true unity. But when we have unity, we can know the Lord is in our midst. It's not something to pat ourselves on the back for. It's not something to say, look at what we've done. But we can say, the Lord is with us the lord is helping us the lord is guiding us the lord is strengthening us the lord is in our midst the unity we have church is the unity of the spirit it's the holy spirit whom god has given us to dwell in our hearts it's he who has united us together and made us one through faith in christ and if the holy spirit is the one who established our unity then it's only by his powerful presence that we can maintain our unity though we are both fallen and finite. God is with us, and he will empower us to maintain the unity that he has given. And so as a final application, church, don't just work for unity. Pray for unity. Pray for it. Seek God's empowering presence to help us maintain our unity. We cannot do it on our own, but we are not on our own. God is with us. The Spirit of Christ is in us. And so let us ask the Father to fill our hearts with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that we may continue to know the wonderful blessing of our unity in Christ and that through our unity the world may see a powerful witness to the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together.